0: So I think, like everything, I think one thing about our profession is we have been pretty adaptable over time. And I think you're seeing an acceleration of that adaptation. So the number of firms that are starting in major diversity, equity, inclusion programs, the number of women in the profession has gotten significantly up in terms of leadership, right? You're seeing more and more leaders. who are women in the
1: profession, and that's another bright yeah, yeah. spot. That Which is just, true. Tw-
2: we still have only, a, we still have a ways to go. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, yeah. Only 23 percent of partners yeah. are women. Yeah, only 23 percent. That is pathetic. That that it's is pathetic. Cool.
2: At the entry right? level, yeah. we at the entry level we see it. It's about 50 50. But you're right, Blake. It
1: starts to trail off well, as you and
2: get, as you and, progress. And
1: this goes to the hours. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Earmark Podcast. I am Blake Oliver, CPA, your host, and I'm joined today by Tom Hood, EVP of Business Engagement and Growth at the AICPA, and Susan Coffey, Chief Executive Officer, Public Accounting at the AICPA. Thank you both for joining me today.
2: Happy to be here, Blake.
1: Pleasure to be here. So, Tom... The AICPA needs no introduction. We all know the acronym, although occasionally I forget that it's no, it's no longer the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. It is now the Association of International, what is it? Certified, Certified Professional <laughs> Accountants. Right. So, AICPA is international, and I tend to forget that a lot of the times. Would you mind just giving us a quick like rundown on the numbers for the AICPA? Yeah.
0: I- I've known the been my whole career. I've been a member. I've been part of it. But now I'm here. And when I talk to members, I'm finding out many don't know that we really have become global and merged with SEMA a few years back. We're now 696,000 professionals, CPAs, CGMAs, students, and engaged professionals, and spanning 192
1: countries and territories. So we're the largest professional association for accountants in the world. I've always been curious, what is what is the breakdown of the membership, especially firm size? Because I know there's a lot of smaller firms that I talk to and they say, yeah, you know, AICPA, I used to be a member when I was at a bigger firm, now I'm not anymore. Do you release those numbers? So you might, I mean, We don't, I don't think we have a specific like breakdown
0: by the size of the firm. I mean, we look at it inside the association, but so you could talk about the major firms, the G 400 and then all the small practitioners.
2: Yeah, sure. So of course we're made up of members in public accounting and members in business and industry. And then we also have some members in, you know, advisory and law and education, right? So we've got a very broad and, and diverse membership. And when it comes to CPA firms, you know, we do look at them within some categories. It's actually a very diverse group. And I, I wouldn't say that any one group is um, dominant over the other. And it's really important to us that we recognize all of our members do all different things and that we serve them all in the best way we can and provide them with the resources they need to do um whatever they do as best as they can do.
1: Let's talk about the issue that's on everyone's minds right now, which is tax season, because we're in tax season, we're in busy season, and most CPAs are dealing with taxes, right? That's the bread and butter of small firms, especially, which make up the bulk of CPA firms in this country. A lot of them are dealing with the IRS right now and dealing with terrible situation there. I'm sure you're aware of the numbers at the end of the 2021 filing season, the IRS had 35 million returns unprocessed. By the end of last year, they still had millions that they hadn't gotten to. So, we're rolling into another tax filing season, and the IRS is way behind. They keep sending out notices, and people keep uh, getting penalties and liens, and they haven't processed the payments, and it's, it's just sort of spiraling out of control for tax preparers. So, I guess that's a long way of getting to my question, which is, how do we fix this mess? So'll
2: I'll take that one and and Tom, j- jump in whenever you want on this. And I guess I'll start out by saying the obvious that it just has been horrendous. And just as you outlined, you know that backlog keeps on getting bigger and bigger. You can't get a hold of anyone, right? They continue to issue the penalty letters. I mean, it, it's just been absolutely horrendous. and and even the taxpayer, the taxpayer advocate recently issued her report and noted, how impossibly bad it was, right? We have had a number, we have a number of initiatives on our plate around this issue and we have been pounding the pavement for quite some time on this. Our congressional affairs and tax advocacy teams have really been doing a great job in offering up suggestions for relief and good public policy Just recently, um, we started to get some real success in this area. We created a coalition with a bunch of different organizations, including the enrolled agents, organizations representing Latino and Black tax preparers, the state CPA societies, organizations representing small CPA firms who you know serve small businesses and individuals. Um, during, you know, tax busy season and all across the, the year, because I'd argue that the entire year now is tax busy season. Um, but we all work together to get bipartisan leaders in Congress to engage. And that actually resulted in a bicameral, two, actually bicameral letters, two letters, one coming from the Senate and one coming from the House to Treasury Secretary Yellen and IRS Commissioner Reddig. To adopt recommendations that we suggested to improve this tax filing season. And the House letter has 191 signatures on it, and the Senate letter has 25 signatures on it, which is absolutely amazing. And the recommendations are around discontinuing those automated collections from now until at least 90 days after April 15th, and really until the IRS can devote the necessary resources for proper resolution. So that's one. There's another one around delaying the collection process for filers until any active penalty abatement requests have been processed. There's another around streamlining the reasonable cause penalty abatement process for taxpayers who are impacted by the pandemic without any need for written correspondence. So it's kind of similar to the first-time abatement waiver, you know, without affecting that that FTA in future years. There's another one on providing targeted tax penalty relief for taxpayers who paid at least 70% of the tax due for the 2020 and 2021 tax years, and then just simply expediting processing of amended returns, right? I've been talking to our VP of taxation almost daily, and the advice that he's giving practitioners is if you're in doubt about something, just delay filing. Just extend the return. Don't file the return and then amend it because that causes all sorts of problems. So those are five things that I know, and the IRS has already announced that they're going to stop sending some notices to taxpayers for filing errors. They have said, though, that they believe they need congressional action on some other stuff, and we don't believe that to be the case. So we're going to be pushing back. Um, We've also been invited to testify before the Senate Finance Committee in February on this issue, where obviously we'll, we'll be... Very well prepared and very well versed to express our views and, and the position um, of our mayors and the te- uh, our members and the taxpayers.
1: So that's a, a good temporary solution, a band-aid, if you will. But this is a big wound that the IRS is bleeding from. So how do we, how do we solve this long term? Obviously, COVID exposed this. It broke open the wound and you know the blood started flowing. We can put a band-Aid on it by halting these notices that just compound the problem. but like this is something that has been brewing for a decade. Since 2010, the IRS budget fell from an inflation-adjusted 12 billion to 10 billion. Meanwhile, the volume of returns went from 152 million to 172 million, and the number of IRS employees went from round up to. 95000 down to 79000 So they have less money, fewer people, mm-hmm. and more work. And that doesn't even take into account that they had to do this child tax credit payment thing, all this stuff that's being shoved into their corner by Congress. Wh- who is, why, why are we just now figuring out that this is a problem? Yeah.
2: It, it, so taxpayer service has been a challenge for quite some time. Right, I mean, I'm I'm reminded of the several years of uh, courtesy disconnects.
1: Right, candidly, yeah, that's I, a that's a really messed up name. If you want to put something right? right, like the most uh, Kafka esque term I have heard in the I, real world. <laughs> totally agree. Is courtesy totally disconnect. Agree. Yeah,
2: you know, Blake, I think part of it is they need to be properly funded, and they need to modernize their technology. I'm not saying those are the only two things, but I do believe that those are two things that would make a significant impact. I think there there's also something to be said for when congress enacts legislation effective dates are are important to look at when the legislation is enacted is important as well so there's a whole bunch of things that kind of go into I think solving the problem but I would say being properly funded for you know a a system that is obviously massive but relies on taxpayer, um, you know, t- taxpayer truthfulness, right? And and self-reporting and things like that, as well as a, a profession that supports them. We've also asked for um, a taxpayer prepare service line to support preparers, not just our members, all preparers, right? Because they have a, an important role in making sure that our tax system works on properly. But I can't stress more technology. I mean, I think yeah. they're they're operating with antiquated technology.
1: Yeah, main mainframe type servers. I, I don't think they're using punch cards anymore, but pretty close to it. Right. Right. If, so, like, I'll, I will tell you that that same scenario
0: is playing out in state after state. I know Maryland. We in the in the old MACPA days, we would go in and request support and funding for the comptroller because. The legislature cut it out all the time. So when they get down to their list of funding opportunities, and they're passing those laws, they cut the you know tax side a lot and use that money elsewhere. And then, and to exacerbate it, so not only do you have antiquated technology, you also have the retirement of the baby boomers, right? So that's driving a lot as well. So there's a whole lot of people retiring from the feds in the state, and the. This challenge with that is that many of them have really good knowledge. That's often something that our folks would deal with, but now they're gone, and they're going to be less senior people that you're going to be dealing with with less training.
1: The IRS needs more funding. We agree on this. How much funding do they need?
2: Oh, I I, I can't answer that, and and I wouldn't I I wouldn't even start. I, I, We've we've not taken a position on that. Um, that's just some a tough, tough thing to answer.
1: So we're saying they need more money, but we don't know how much money they need. Like I I guess I see it this way. Like we have seven seven hundred thousand members, right? That's a lot of voters. That's a lot of now, not everybody's a US citizen, but a lot of them are, right? Like we we can mobilize, but it's hard to mobilize around just like something ambiguous, like they need more resources can't we tell congress what they should what they should give the irs
2: yeah, but, but well, how, how, would know, how would we know that based on i mean like w- we don't have access to to perform an evaluation and i i do know that this year congress came out with a number right in in one of the the bills um that was floating around i think oh god uh, help me out guys help me out Tom. yeah yeah well 80 the Democrats. billion in order to get three hundred eighty billion in order to get 300 billion worth of tax right. dollars or something like that. Uh, yeah. Something like that. But do, right. please don't quote me because I, it didn't well, it is,
1: So these various numbers have been tossed around. I don't even know how, how much the IRS is getting at this point because the bills have passed or they haven't. The, the question is like, maybe it's a lot more. If we're going to fix this problem long term it can't be a political thing, right? But it like, needs to you be. Don't, yeah, but
2: you don't want yeah. to just throw money at a problem. You want to, you want to assess what the true needs are, what the yeah. right technology is. How do you, tra- I mean, how do you transform the process to make it as effective and efficient as possible? So I, I don't think it's, I don't, I don't think it's a num- uh, uh, an exercise of just throwing money at, at it.
0: Yeah. Well, The, yeah. the but, thing that we yeah. struggled with at the state level which I think is true at the federal level, Blake, is that it's one thing to have a legislature authorize the money, but they they will tell you, and they've told us many times, that they can't direct where that money goes. I remember a while back, we were advocating on, on, the, on the Hill, if you will, with the AICPA on some IRS stuff, and the problem was they couldn't guarantee where that money would go. So you throw money at them, and they put it in some completely different area Mm -hmm. Like enforcement, and all of a sudden, the things that you want to help (laughs) help people file their taxes on time and do the right thing, all of a sudden, is being moved into some uh, another whole area that you can't control anymore. So, and Congress doesn't have that level of authority over the IRS, from what we understand, or in the states, it's the same basic setup.
1: I just, I just am not convinced that saying writing letters and saying the IRS needs more resources, without being more quantitative about it is gonna make a difference because this, this decline has happened for 10 years. It's happened for a decade. And you know, like the elephant in the room, right, is what everybody knows, which is that uh, there's a political reason the IRS has been starved of resources, right? Because some people believe that if you weaken the IRS, it becomes more difficult to enforce the tax code. And so people who don't like to pay higher taxes can avoid doing so through legitimate tax avoidance and the IRS doesn't have the resources to audit people. This is, this is the strategy that has worked. And we've seen that the effective tax rate of high, high net worth individuals, corporations has gone down as a result. Rather than arguing the, the case on the merits, it's undermined the IRS to get the result you want.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know if that's the origin of all that, but I just know that at the state and federal level, funding the tax collector is not a like thing that politicians like to do
1: right because right it, it the, just seems kind of insane to starve the revenue generating arm of your government this is like the sales organization in a business right if you don't fund that there's nothing to power the business you you just need to come down
0: to one of some of these hill visits or go, go to one of the state cpa days and and talk to the legislators and get their perspective but that's That's what the average legislator, they they just don't, they don't feel comfortable funding unless they knew it was going to go to the right sources. So it's, it's a, it is political whether we like it or not. And that's part of the problem is our politics is, is up in, up in arms right now. Right. It has been too for a
1: while. So we're at this stalemate, right? Where the IRS doesn't get the resources it needs. What's the solution? How do we fix this? Is it, it's not going to go away on its own. Like COVID caused the problem to get really bad. Just like the great resignation, just like all this other stuff I'd love to talk about. But like, how do we fix it?
0: Well, right now we're trying to get the basic stuff done so we can get through taxis. And I think that's like number one. And then it's yeah. I, I think the other part is nothing's gonna happen until COVID calms down some, right? And then because that's the other exacerbating factor, is you've got a lot of IRS employees who aren't in the office or or they're sick and they're out like every other business there is. So that's all part of the compounding. So I think yeah you know, our idea is to get through this so we can at least get some semblance of support through this crisis uh, and then go to the next step, which is all about uh, legislative advocacy, right? Which is what we do. And now we've got a coalition of a bunch of groups and maybe that collective power will get somebody's attention. We haven't done that before. And that's what the ICPA convened that bigger group. So now it's,
1: trying to get, it's, it's all about strength in numbers. Let's, let's move on and talk about uh, another topic that is near and dear to my heart, which is the CPA pipeline. And I know that you guys care a lot about that too, because of the CPA evolution project. I apologize. I hate to be the bearer of bad statistics, but I'm going to hit you with a few more. We all know there's been a decline in the number of CPAs taking the exam. CPA exam candidates are down. The pandemic, again, It's just like with the IRS, accelerated this problem, but it was already in progress. I think the number that I saw most recently that stood out to me was NASBA's uh, annual report. From 2019, total revenue at NASBA, National Association of State Boards of Accountancy, decreased by 12.4%, which was attributable to a 13.8% decline in revenue from CPA examination and licensing. Fewer CPAs are sitting for the exam. CPA firms are hiring fewer CPAs. It's declined by 30% in recent years. They're hiring folks who are not CPAs. We've got CPA firms that are choosing not to be CPA firms anymore. Eisner Amper is a great example of that, splitting off their audit practice to focus on consulting and tax. Finding and retaining talent, a big problem. If we don't push up these numbers of CPAs, right? how do we stay relevant? How do we reverse this trend? Tom, you want to take this one first?
0: Well, I see, I'm, I'm going to let Sue do the evolution okay. side of that, but I will say that you know there's also a demographic trend here that we call a hard trend, right? So just like we had the baby boom and the baby bust, if you remember, Gen X was a lot less than the baby boomers. You have that phenomena going through right now in terms of less college age worker level people. So there's a physical shortage. It's not just people saying I'm not I'm not going to be the CPA again. Smaller
1: generation, yeah.
0: Correct. You got a small generation dynamic, which is compounding it to your point. And then the other part you have is you also have a roaring stock market. So we know that accounting majors often will opt, go out to finance because they look at the, I'm going to go Wall Street and make $600,000 my first couple of years. So that draws them out. Data analytics on the tech side is also drawing away some of those candidates. Evolution is one of our answers to that. We're also looking at adding accounting to STEM. So it's more like going from STEM to STEAM. I think there's a a bill in Congress to add that. So just think about every school in the country, pre-college, what are they pushing everybody to major in or do when they get out? It's all about the STEMs, right? Science, technology, engineering, and math. So if we think of, of accounting as a discipline around math that helps you understand business of all kinds, that's another, and and there's plenty of students that don't even get exposed to accounting, right? If you're not in a family that's got professional level people. So that's where we're trying to kind of do that basic level piece. And then Sue, add the evolutionary change that we're doing with uh, evolution.
2: Yeah, sure. So a couple of things. So the accounting is under the T for technology. (laughs) <laughs> and, I say, and I'm saying that because that is a big part of CP evolution. But I do want to, just about the, the hard facts. So just to add, just to, to pile on a bit of what you guys were just saying. So there are, since the pandemic, there are one and a half million fewer students in the university system. And that's a combination, as you guys both said, of the pandemic uh, but birth rates as well for young um adults that age. I will say one other thing that, and I think this is because the economy has been so good and the stock market has been booming that education is valued less at some companies and it's valued even more or less because there are fewer people. So companies are saying, you know, I just I just need a body, I can train them. So that dynamic is going on. And and Blake, to your point, it does mean that our peace is less and we need to fight harder for that talent. So the question is, how do we go about doing that? And so we actually, CPA Evolution is part of it, but we have a broader CPA pipeline initiative that is actually designed to gather Fact versus fiction, because there is a lot of fiction <laughs> um, being floated around out there in terms of what's really happening. So it's I, identifying the fact and identifying the fiction. And then starting the dialogue and getting all of the stakeholders who have who have some piece of working together on solving the problem in a room, and figuring out what those pieces are. So, for example, CPA firms themselves um, have a role. They have a role in getting into the high schools before students actually make a decision to go to college and and talk about the value proposition of our profession. You know, an amazing dynamic profession it is and, and what the upside is, right? They have an obligation to look at their business models to see if they need to change in order to better address kind of what's going on. We obviously at the AICPA, we have responsibility for part of this too. We own the CPA exam or there are things in the CPA exam that should change. And I'll talk about CPA evolution in in a minute. You know, state societies have a really important role too. I mean, they're kind of, they're the boots on the ground in their state. They know the high schools, they know the universities, they know the faculty, they know the students, they can drive messaging as well. The regulatory community has a role in this as well. There are certain rules and regulations that are barriers to entry that are outdated and maybe unnecessary. So do the regulators need to take a look at their rules and regulations and determine whether some of them should be modified or eliminated, so there's a there are I, I could give you like ten more stakeholders, but starting that dialogue and saying what are the top five things that each stakeholder group should be doing in concert, in a coordinated fashion with measurable deliverables, and we got to get we got to get to it and get it done. Okay, so that's that's just kind of our broader pipeline initiative. CPA evolution, which you mentioned, yes, we've been working on that for about four years now. That's about um, updating legal.
1: the exam. Well, right? the it's, curriculum. it's about
2: redefining the licensure process, right? right? And and part of that is education, and and we just issued a uh, curriculum that can help support what we're trying to do. It is it is a CPA evolution model curriculum. Um, It is not an accounting program or a business program curriculum. Um, And then changing the CPA exam to focus on a core of accounting, auditing, tax, and technology. And then allowing the student or the CPA exam candidate to select right now one of three disciplines. Tax and planning is one. Business analysis and reporting is a second. And information systems and controls is a third. So if I, for example, and, and this is why I said that it's accounting is under the T in STEM for technology because we're super focused on technology. And so let's say I'm a student who is in an MIS program in college and I'm really interested in business. Maybe I have a co-major in business. Maybe I have a minor in business. There is a really interesting Pathway to get your CPA. Yes, you need to know foundational accounting and auditing and tax. And I want to emphasize foundational. But when you go to that discipline, you have the ability to actually display what you know about information systems, information controls, cybersecurity, uh, system organization yeah. and controls. So it really is designed or redesigned to bring in, to, to widen the net for attractiveness and interest in our profession.
1: I love the fact that technology is getting a bigger stake in the exam, but I, I do think it's going to be a hard sell to try and convince somebody who's studying IT or information technology at a university to come over to do the CPA, given how much money you can make in tech. I mean, tech, tech money is one of the things that, to be honest, pulled me away from public accounting. I was a manager at a large firm and a startup came knocking and the firm just couldn't match that or the options. The fact that I could get stock options and participate in the equity of the company, whereas in a public accounting firm, I'd have to wait to, you know, hopefully make partners someday on an undefined timeline. And so- Well,
0: the, the tech's getting automated at a pretty fast rate, Blake. So if they get into it, unless they figure out how to move up the value chain- if they stay in at a programmer or senior analyst-type level, they'll never advance. I mean, they'll get really good starting salaries, but they won't get the advancement that we're seeing. And that's true even on the corporate side. That's what they're saying. The the combo of that CPA Mm -hmm. with any of that other background makes them able to withstand the robo-apocalypse that everybody's talking about.
2: And and I will say that I believe that a lot of firms are looking at their business models and really challenging whether they are fit for purpose in an environment now where talent is really hard to find and different types of talent are very hard to find.
1: Well, and and that's the real issue, right? When it comes down to, you don't become an accounting student to follow your dreams. Like, let's just be realistic about that. I think everybody agrees. Uh, I was a musician before I became an accountant. I became an accountant, actually first a bookkeeper, then an accountant to pay the bills. And I happened to like it a lot and people wanted to pay me to do it. And now I love it. I found a a niche in technology that I love. And I think a lot of people do accounting because they wanna pursue their passions. They don't wanna make it their full-time thing. They wanna be comfortable. The problem I see with the accounting career trajectory, the traditional trajectory is get your accounting degree Start working at a big four if you can, right? That's the ideal pathway, big firm, big four, audit, tax, take your CPA exam, put in a lot of hours, and then eventually you exit to industry and you get that nice, comfortable position as a corporate controller. People talk about this openly, right, on on Reddit. I don't know if this is considered gauche or inappropriate to talk about in uh, other circles, but like this is what people are thinking when they are students. The problem is that that has changed. And now it's very obvious to people who are on social media what it's actually like working 55 hours billable minimum at a large firm when you're a staff accountant. It's not healthy. It's not good. And that's what most people are up against when they go in there. And the pay, honestly, is not that great. It hasn't kept up. It used to be the pay made up for it, or you could you could justify it that to yourself. But now people are looking at, I'm, bill- I'm billable for 55 hours. I'm going to be working for 60 to 70 for the next three to four months. Oh, and busy season doesn't really have an end anymore, as you said, Tom. So it's just not that appealing.
0: Well, I think you're seeing, first of all, a big shift in a lot of employers. So I think, yeah, while it's not it's not instantly fixed across the board, and there's going to be a bunch of people that are miserable and on Reddit complaining, but there's a whole bunch of them, and I, I see those firms, so to sue, every day. Uh, so two things. The other part is this: the nice, soft, easy job as a corporate controller. That's a total myth. I was one, and I worked just as hard as most people in public accounting most of my career prior to that. So I think... You know, that's, the, I know it's, all, it's so like the the grass pro- is always greener on the other side, right? So I'm there's gonna- not even
1: a promised land then. I mean, so that just, that just compounds the problem, right? Because then, see, the problem is we're in a talent crunch, right? So, right. And, and I'm a millennial. My generation, you know, you want to psychoanalyze us, right? We have been scarred in so many ways. First, by the Great Recession, which destroyed my dream of being a musician in many ways and forced me to become an accountant. Which I'm happy I did, but that was bad. A lot of us went through that. And now we've got the pandemic. And I think a lot of millennials and the Gen Zers behind us have just decided that it's not worth it. It's not worth working that many hours, even if you're going to make maybe a lot of money someday. And I think the myth of like making partner has pretty much been dispelled, don't you think? Like, because only what 1% of people who enter a big accounting firm make partner. So, like, it's very unlikely.
2: So, Blake, so, yeah. I yeah, I, if if I could just kind of chime in here, I do think, as I mentioned, firms are really looking at their business models because they know that they know that they've got this challenge, and they're doing. There are a lot of firms who are doing a lot of things to address all many of the things that you just laid out. So, for example they realize that they may need to change their client base. And they are looking at their clients to make sure that they are the right clients, that it is the right fit for the firm, that their fees are priced appropriately. And many firms are actually calling clients and saying, you know what, we're taking off the, bot- the bottom 20%. Get, you know, Pick your firm. They may maybe more, it may be less. But They're taking off a certain amount and saying, we're going to create a different type of environment in our firm based on a smaller client base. Whether it's they're focusing on a certain industry or they're focusing on a certain service or they're only taking certain types of clients, they're looking at it from a business perspective and from a talent perspective. And when you say
1: that, do you mean they're also reducing hours?
2: That would be, yes, they are. And they're looking, and they're also looking at different ways to compensate. So I get the, you know, you may not become a partner, but there are other pathways within firms that are just as lucrative and just as satisfying for some who may not even want to be a partner. There, there are a lot of people who don't want to be a partner in certain firms. Yeah. Right, Um, But they get the exposure, they have profit sharing and things like that. So I I think there is a lot going on within firms now to take a hard look at some of those things that were kind of, some might say, set in stone and nothing is set in stone anymore.
1: Well, I mean, some things never change, right? Like CPA firm partners are still 91% white. We've been working on diversity in the profession for 20 years now, and that's still the same.
0: Well, that's true in a whole lot of corporate America. I Mm -hmm. think it's it's an initiative, though, that many are moving the needle on. I mean, I've I've seen a bunch of examples of large and small firms that are focusing on diversity and inclusion, and that's all part of culture shifts. So you're seeing – the other thing is the next-gen leaders now are starting to take root. So to your point, for years, the baby boomers never retired, uh, and that was a trait. I'm one of them, so it's a trait of us wanting to be workaholics and working hard, right? So something we did. But the next generation is beginning to take over and you're starting to see sea changes in some of these firms. So I think like everything, I think one thing about our profession is we have been pretty adaptable over time. And I think you're seeing an acceleration of that adaptation. So the number of firms that are starting in major diversity, equity, inclusion programs, the number of women in the profession has gotten significantly up in terms of leadership right you're seeing more and more leaders
1: uh who are women in the profession and that's another bright yeah, you know, spot that, but that is true tw- we
2: still have only, a li- we still have a ways to go
1: <laughs> yeah. O- yeah only 23% of partners yeah. are women yeah, only 23% yeah, that, that is pathetic that that it's is pathetic
2: true. at the right? entry yeah. level we at the entry level we see it it's about 50-50 but you're right blank it starts to trail off well, as you get as you and, progress,
1: and this goes to the hours. So I think these two things are linked. I think that the crazy hours at CPA firms is what pushes many women. Now here I am mansplaining, right? So this is totally inappropriate, but <laughs> pushing. this is my theory, right? And I'll tell you why I have this theory and you tell me if I'm right, Sue, or wrong. So, you know, the hours, right? It's very, very difficult to be a, a, a parent if you're working lots of hours. And I have experienced this myself. I have a seven-year-old son and my wife and I made a deal, we're going to do 50-50. We are really going to try to do that. And when I say 50-50, you know, I don't mean like the fake dad does 50, but it's really like 20% kind of thing, right? We're really (laughs) splitting this as best we can quantitatively too. And I could never be a father to my son and be present in his life, working traditional public accounting hours. I just couldn't. And so, is that why women tend to fall off at manager and above?
2: So I I don't know, but I will tell you that, and, and I'll, I'll use my own personal experience because I worked really hard at AICPA. So I was in public, I started in public accounting and then I did a year in business and then I came to the AICPA. So I've been with the AICPA for quite a while and I worked really, I I still work very hard at the AICPA, but I always had... a significant amount of flexibility in where I could work. So I traveled, but when I didn't travel, I worked at home and I had a sitter, but I had a significant amount of flexibility. So I, if you asked my kids who are 24 and 25, they would say, mom, you were at everything. Now I wasn't at everything, but to them, I was at everything, which is great.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Perception is reality.
2: But it was because right? I had the flexibility and also within my team, I I created a culture of that for the entire team, right? So I'm led mm-hmm. by example. And I, I and I think it's worked. I do think now that firms, again, this is part of kind of looking at their business model and the pandemic really forced this, the flexibility, yeah. like, hey, we never thought we could do an audit remotely. We 100% can do an audit remotely. So why does why does the CPA have to be at the client's location when they could be doing it at home, yeah. right? And that goes a long way because then you can go to your, your son or your daughter's basketball game or school play from three to four or three to five and then come back and do what you need to do. So I really think that the pandemic has is forcing this level of flexibility that is going to continue because people are seeing it can be done.
1: Yeah. I think in many ways it was a blessing in disguise in that regard. Not calling the pandemic a blessing is terrible. I should I should cut that from the show, but, <laughs> but I, I totally won't
2: Yeah, we get it. We get you
1: get what I mean, it's, right? It's like the there,
0: silver lining. Yeah. There are silver, the, linings. silver linings. Yeah. Yeah. There are yeah. silver
1: linings to terrible things. So yeah, I mean, I hope that changes, right? Like I think but I think the problem is that. It's changing so slowly. And there's a lot of firms that are not adapting. Y- you see it in, in the firms that I talk to, which tend to be 100 people or less, which is small in the world of CPA firms, right? But most of them, that is where the action's happening. And you see flexibility. You see true cloud-based firms.
2: Mm-hmm. You do.
1: You know, firms that, that you don't have to be in the office. We don't require you to have a set schedule. But yeah, maybe that's like 5 10% at this point. And so that's the problem. It's like, how do we get really
2: progressive firm? There are some really progressive firms. There are fair. And, and I love to see a lot of them that are all female and we have a ways to go with females. We have even more to go with, you know, racial diversity and and whatnot. And, and that's a tough one. A lot of firms are focused on it, but it's a tough one.
0: Yeah. But add add to it that the, the cloud technology piece, right, which has accelerated dramatically through COVID is now allowing that flexibility. And again, on the corporate business and industry side, we're seeing the exact same thing where they would never be flexible about whenever we have to do our quarter close, everybody's all hands-on, we're all here. They're all doing that remote now and they're focusing on more flexibility in their culture. And so it is I think that's spreading faster than you might think because we're hearing it every day. Is it everywhere? No. Are there plenty of examples of those folks on Reddit being right? Yes, but it is moving faster than it
1: ever has. So I hope it comes across that I am actually very passionate about (laughs) this profession and about accounting and I love it. And that's why I get to the hard questions first, Uh, because I think we have a lot of, of challenges, In our profession due to some of these, the tendency of our profession to be conservative is a good thing but also a bad thing in times of rapid change. And there's one more thing I want to touch on which is super nerdy and I hope you'll indulge me before we go, which is goodwill. So, FASB, I believe it's FASB has reopened this concept of talking about goodwill and how we deal with it on our corporate balance sheets. Tom, maybe since you're the former corporate controller, CFO guy, you can, you can help me with this. And I think the current discussion is, you know, should we continue to analyze it and impair it or analyze for impairment annually and then write it down or should we start amortizing it? And I think this, personally, I think this completely misses the point and misses a big opportunity because what is goodwill? We should actually like think about it. It represents 30, almost 30% of corporate balance sheets now, goodwill. And if you went and you talked to accountants on the street and you did man on the street and you asked them, what is goodwill? You'd probably get 10 different answers or a hundred different answers. And if you tie this to intangible assets, which is what goodwill really represents, right? It's the, the value of intangible assets created by a company. We have a real problem with, with gap. And this ties back to our entire discussion about the future of the profession, which is you want to get people to go into audit, but they're auditing financial statements that are not really that useful these days.
2: So can I, can I answer the question outside of goodwill? Because boy, am I glad you asked Tom that and not me. But <laughs> The way, I mean, what you were kind of talking about got me thinking about the work we're doing with integrated reporting and business reporting and the value proposition of, I'll just say corporate reporting in general. How, you know, 85% of a business's value right now is through intangibles. It's not through the things that we report on the balance sheet, right? Yes. And it it gets to issues like, you know, ESG, right? Environmental, social governance. Um, It gets to brand, it gets to talent, you know, it gets to raw materials and, you know, um, depletion and things like that. And I, I really believe that the future of our profession is in broader business reporting and the value proposition we can bring to that whether we're working in a company or we're in public accounting advising. It's not like the traditional financial statements that, you know, we we learned about in college.
1: Yeah, I love that idea of adding more information so that investors can make better decisions, because isn't that the entire point of financial statements and auditing? We prepare financial statements to give investors and management information, and then we audit them as accounts to protect those investors. Mm-hmm. But- if you follow Baruch Lev's research, as detailed in his book, The End of Accounting, his research finds that today's financial reports provide only 5 to 6% of the information relevant to and used by investors.
2: It's exactly Let's, right.
1: I mean, when was the last time you looked at financial statements of a company to make an investment decision? We're accountants and we don't do it. And that's because all the growth that's happening in our stock market that's happened over the last 40 50 years now has been in intangible assets. That's right. And GAP does a terrible job of valuing intangible assets. So poorly does it value intangible assets that we created this thing called goodwill. And we just plug the balance sheet. 30% of it is just this hole called goodwill. So, I, I guess my question is, how do we fix that? How do Why, why isn't FASB working on that? How to value intangible assets or, or you know, like how to... of the market value of the S&P 500 is intangible assets now. And we suck at it because we're using an accounting system that was built for an industrial era. And we're in an era of knowledge and invisible things. So I was say,
2: oh, go ahead, Tom.
0: Go
1: ahead, Sue.
2: No, I was just going to say, I know that um, RASB has just gone through an exercise, an agenda setting exercise. I haven't seen the final product but they asked for feedback on what their agendas should be over the next few years. And I do believe they received a fair amount of comments on kind of this concept of broader reporting and disclosures. I don't know, I, I don't know where what their conclusion is or anything like that, but I think we're going to see something relatively soon.
0: And then the other part, right, that, that I know AICPA, I think Barry might be the chairman or he's on the on the board of the Value Reporting Foundation, which used to be the integrated reporting group. And that Value Reporting Foundation is, is basically, I think, what combined with SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, and they're putting forth this idea of intangibles and they even have a model report that many companies are beginning to adopt. So even if it's not regulated, if you will, by FASB mm-hmm. or other regulators, or even the SEC, it is something that many companies are beginning to adapt. It also, by the way, when you start talking about ESG in our profession, that's a driver for the young folks coming out of college. They love the fact that the profession's got some of these social benefits uh, Objectives inside of it, and that yeah. we are trying to change that. Now, it's it's not easy for us to change all that, but in fact, many companies, because of all the movements in the recent years, are now adopting those kind of things, and uh, it's on their agenda, which is kind of exciting.
1: Yeah, and, and that's good, right? Like, if anything that we can do to provide information to investors that they care about, especially when it comes to environmental causes, like maybe we can actually make a difference as accountants. I really do believe that.
0: And, and, and think about the whole idea of accountability, which is in accounting, and the fact that, as Sue said, both the corporates are adopting it voluntarily in many cases. But then you're going to want assurance on those numbers because anyone can start making up, here's how much green we are and we're doing this or that. You know, it's all that kind of doing the, the, the painting on the wall for the balance sheet and income state. They're going to start putting it to having audits about it. So I think there's where our professional a a big role
1: in the future
0: of of the whole world from that standpoint, helping companies do good.
1: Well, I I do hope though that we don't get distracted by this shiny object called ESG and all these other acronyms because like, I mean, GAP is what we do, right? That's our thing. That's That's our franchise is auditing GAP financial statements. It's the only thing you need your CPA to actually do. And if GAP is not useful to investors, like what's the point? And maybe to get back to our question about our discussion of the pipeline, maybe that's one of the reasons why people don't want to be auditors as much anymore. It's because they're aware of this. When, when, a, when a company's financial statement goes on to Edgar, only like 30 people download it. So, like you do all that work as an auditor, not only does nobody ever look at your work papers, but very few investors are actually looking at the financial statements because the information in there is just not that useful anymore to them because the economy has changed. Well, and- it's
0: it's not useful unless it's wrong. And then, then you see company failures, right? So if, if we don't have that base level there, yeah, I think yeah. we have to evolve the financial system in general, and we'll be at that table. But for now, we know what happens when people mess around with those numbers, and they aren't verified and audited. And what can happen? So, I think that's the other part of it. We are still playing. So, just think about the PPP money that they did, which I know there's a whole bunch of fraud that went, but what did they run that stuff through? Accounting, payroll systems, right? That's where that whole, all those monies went through those systems, which is why those systems, the core of our profession, are so important to our. That's why we got licensed as CPAs to begin with. It's the public interest part.
1: Yeah. But I mean, most auditors will disclaim any liability for finding fraud. Like it's not, we'd say it's not our job to find fraud. No, but so it's our job have, to make sure the numbers are.
2: We, yeah. We have a responsibility to detect fraud.
1: <laughs> but then you look at like, you look at these collapses of companies in the UK and like, they're seriously talking about breaking up the, the big four in the UK because of all this. It's, it's shameful.
0: No. Yeah, and then it becomes what's the alternative, and that's where it gets, you know, do you want government doing that, which could set up a whole different uh, idea.
1: Well, I think one of the ideas floated around has been, you know, don't let companies select their own auditors. You know, you could randomly assign it or have, you know, the SEC assign the auditors. And then there's not this conflict of interest that you have as an audit partner where this person's paying my salary, this person's paying me to audit them. We don't have time to talk about this now, and I've kept you over, so I, I'll just end with this. But like, there's a fundamental conflict of interest in our profession when it comes to audit, which is we get paid by our clients. You you can't be independent when you're getting paid by somebody. There's, that's that's a connection. That's that's a lack of independence.
2: Well, remember right? that the uh, no, it is not. But remember that the audit committee is the is who hires the auditor, and that is who receives the financial statements. So it is not management.
1: Tom, Sue, thank you so much for joining me today. Awesome.
2: Yeah, thanks. Appreciate being here.
1: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something new. And if you did, wouldn't it be nice to get some CPE credit for it? Well, I've got great news. My new app, Earmark CPE, offers free naspa approved CPE credits for listening to podcasts, including this one. Visit earmarkcpe.com to download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. That's earmarkcpe.com.